1: Welcome, my friends, to the Main Street Vegan Program. I am coming to you from beautiful uptown Manhattan in a closet. No kidding. They are doing work on my building. I have been renting a conference room space to do the show the past few months, but they were having a conference today. So if you hear some background noise, we are going to soldier on for the cause. And as we know, the show must go on, which is Fitting for today's program because I am going to be speaking with a filmmaker, but I must say the impact and the importance of her work goes far, far beyond entertainment. I'll be speaking with Sangeeta Iyer. She is the filmmaker of an epic documentary called Gods in Shackles that reveals the dark side of the southern Indian state of Kerala's glamorous cultural festivals where temple elephants are exploited for profit under the guise of culture and religion. Welcome, Sangeeta. Thank you.
4: It's just wonderful to be on your show, and the work that you do is also tremendous. We're all here to make a difference on our planet, and you're just pursuing your calling, and I am very honored to be doing the job that I am doing, so thank you for this opportunity.
1: Well, it is absolutely an, an amazing work that you're doing, such a difficult, difficult thing to tackle. I think that elephants really speak to the hearts of many, many people, and many people long before they're vegan or vegetarian, they have a, a sympathy for this particular species. But when we talk about them in this country, people think either about the horrible training of, of circus elephants and their captivity or we think about the ivory trade, and those are both awful, of course, but now you're bringing to mind something else and something that is done under the guise of religion. So tell us about this.
4: So that makes it even darker, right? Because, yes. um, you know, all religions uh, ask us for compassion love, and kindness, not this kind of cruelty that's being inflicted on the so-called temple elephants. These are Asian elephants that are being kidnapped from their paradise, torn from their families, and tortured and trained in order to ensure that they perform in uh, various temple rituals and cultural festivals under the name of religion. And people blindly just follow uh, without questioning or challenging. And so this is where I think that this movie has really shed some light on the amount of money that they're generating under the guise of culture and religion, which was um, uh, sort of like an undercover thing that people were not even aware of until this movie was released. So that is a huge... Um, revelation for many people who are now realizing, wow, uh, hundreds and thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars are being uh, generated by exploiting these sentient and intelligent and humble, noble, and gentle animals that, like you said, are not only um, loving creatures but they're also vegan because they are they eat only herbs they don't drink milk of course in captivity they do except their own mother's milk which we all do which we all did when we were young but um, so in that regard elephants are also vegans
1: you know, that is so interesting the idea that we're protecting not only these beautiful animals, but fellow vegans. So how did you find out about this? It only goes on, are you telling us, in one state and all of India?
4: Actually, there are about four or five states in southern India that use elephants in temples and for religious rituals. But in Kerala, there are 601 captive elephants that are being used exclusively for temple rituals and uh, uh, religious uh, and cultural celebrations. Whereas in other states, you may find about 50 or 75 or 100, but even that many are one too many. Um, But When it comes to the scope and scale of torture that takes place in Kerala, it's just phenomenal. And... I found out about this. This has been going on for decades, but what happened was in December of 2013, when I was visiting Kerala, I, a friend of mine, a conservationist friend of mine said, um, you know, you love elephants so much. By the way, elephants have always been so close to my heart, like you said earlier, They just touch the core of your being because they are so pure and transparent. And even as a child, I grew up in Kerala, actually, until the age of four. And um, I remember my grandparents used to take me to this temple in a little district called Palakkad. And um, there was this one male elephant that I completely fell in love with. And so um, then, fast forward 27 years later, I am at, you know, visiting all these temples uh, throughout Kerala and I, every single elephant that I encountered had massive tumors on their hips because they've, you know, they were made to sit in odd positions. Their legs and ankles carried massive scars and some really deep wounds and the shackles just sort of, uh, cutting into those wounds. I mean, can you imagine that? And some elephants were totally blind. Uh, they were made to carry such heavy ornaments and icons and more than three, pe- uh, three people, approximately 500 pounds of weight on their delicate spine uh, and made to parade beneath the scorching sun. I so looked you- at it and I said, yeah, this is, there's something wrong with this with this picture. And uh, yeah.
1: Very wrong. And you made a movie, beautiful film. Mm -hmm. It made the lead story on the front page of the national geographic. And I will put uh, the link to that in the mainstreetvegan.net show notes, but tell us why this title. And then tell us about Mm -hmm. Ganesh, the elephant God. I presume that reverence for him is how somehow we got perverted. And these terrible things are happening to elephants.
4: Yes, and so the title, Gods in Shackles, emerged actually after observing how these elephants were being made to sort of prostrate in front of the uh, temple altars and in front of gods. And on the other hand, ironically or paradoxically, you also find that the Hindu god, who is considered to be the remover of all obstacles, has an elephant face um, and according to hindu mythology um, he, this this particular god got the elephant face because uh, lord shiva uh tried to barge into uh, where uh, his wife parvati was having a bath and um, her son was asked to protect and not allow the father to or anybody to enter that area somehow Uh, the father got really angry and he sliced off his head and then when Parvati came out of her shower, she was just completely shattered and devastated, but also became very angry. And she said, I am the Shakti. In, in the West, we call Parvati Shakti, and Shakti is another name for Parvati. She said, with my might, you know, I can destroy the entire planet if you don't return my child to me. And so he went around and looked for the first animal or the first living being that anybody would come across to slice off the head and plant implanted on the head of this body. That is the myth. That's the belief. That's how Lord Ganesha emerged, and he is considered to be the embodiment of Lord Gane. or the elephants are considered to be the embodiment of Lord Ganesh. and it is the same animal that they torture and enslave under
1: the veil of religion. How paradoxical is that? It is indeed. Well, you seem to have a lot of Shakti in you to (laughs) make this film and and to start an organization on behalf of these amazing elephants. So uh, tell us, there is no actual religious um, scripture or anything that says that this is supposed to be done, correct?
4: Absolutely, and especially, um, I mean, obviously there are no... Muslim or Islam or uh, Christian scriptures that has anything to do with Lord Ganesha in the first place, but when it comes to um, Hindu religion, in fact there is uh, you know the ancient um, the ancient scriptures in uh, I think it was the Isha Upanishad it is one of the Vedic Uh, Upanishads meaning like holy scriptures uh, that was um, available in the 1500 BC, it went on to say that the universe along with its creatures belongs to the land. No creature is superior to any other human beings should not be above nature. Let no one species encroach over the rights and privileges of other species. And India's own, uh, leader Mahatma Gandhi who is considered to be the father of uh, the nation he actually says the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated and so you can see in the ancient days there was nothing pertaining to using elephants in, uh, in any of the religious scriptures but about a hundred years ago or I would say rather about 150 years ago now Uh, a king by the name of Saktan Tamburin in Kerala, he, uh, you know, there used to be, we still have the caste system, which is pervasive across India. And uh, this king felt the low caste people don't get to see the, uh, you know, the statue of the gods that are inside the temple. So, Thoughtfully, um, in you know, with all good intentions, he pulled out the idol and he said, "I'm going to place this on top of the tallest vehicle available." Those days there were no trucks, there were no cars or any chariots. Humans were just evolving, and so he just—I mean—in those ancient cultures, they used elephants even for combat and um, for logging and such. So he couldn't think of a better vehicle, and he used elephant, uh, one or two elephants, to carry um, the idol. And uh, ever since then, you know, it has been sort of like a tradition, but never to the extent that it is today. More than 600 elephants in any religious festivals, unheard of. How can you justify that? Where are these elephants being captured from? You know, these Asian elephants are considered to be an endangered species. How is this allowed? How can the world sit back and watch this global treasure
1: being decimated from our planet? Well, not if you have anything to say about it. Your your passion is palpable. So, just in our last few minutes here, where are you with with the film? Is it finished? Can we see it? Fill us in. Yeah the the finish. Uh, sorry, the film
4: was a hundred percent. Gods and Shackles was hundred percent completed on May the twenty first. After that, I traveled to India. Actually, I traveled to Kerala first in honoring the fact that the film was uh, produced basically out of Kerala, meaning all of the footage was gathered in Kerala. And uh, Kerala has a brand-new government. As fate would have it, the new government is a lot more open and receptive to change. At least that's what it seems like at the moment. And they came to power in May, just around the same time that my film was produced, completed, final version was completed, And I was planning my trip to India in June, so I contacted through another journalist friend of mine in Kerala called Dinesh. I contacted um, the speaker. He helped me connect with the speaker of the General Assembly. And I proposed, and I said, listen, this movie is about uh, how elephants are being used in Kerala. I would really appreciate you watching this before the world watches it and starts condemning some of the practices. I mean, it really took a lot of reflection and courage, and I felt it was my moral obligation to have them view the documentary first. And with open hands, he welcomed me into the Legislative Assembly and – on the legislature's grounds, we screened the documentary, the debut, on uh, June the 29th. It was such a poignant day in my life, and uh, many MLAs, participated and now it seems the entire state is awakening to this and i heard that around august the 6th the chief minister of kerala actually watched the movie because i sent uh, a link to one of the central ministers so a lot of things has, things have happened in the last couple of months um, even since we actually scheduled this interview, uh, the movie has been screened in about 12 major cities in India. Um, we have had, like, uh, unbelievable support. I was actually terrified of going to Kerala, wondering what the reactions would be like. But the media were all over it. It almost seemed to me that the media have been desperately trying to, to do this story, but, you know, they were just being blocked uh, by the status quo. And now here comes this movie and the new government. And so it's almost like the universe just unfolded and opened doors that I would have never imagined.
1: Wow. This is the time when those doors do seem to be opening for animals in ways that they never have before. The website yeah. is godsinshackles.com. You yes. can find uh, Sangita and information about the film on Facebook at forthelove.elephants. They're on mm-hmm. Twitter at Gods in Shackles. I will put all of this as well as a Vimeo link to the 30-second trailer of Gods in Shackles on the show notes. Just go to MainStreetVegan.net, click on podcast and show notes, and uh, that will take you there. And you can just spend some time getting to know Sangeeta and this wonderful film in our last 60 available seconds. A final word Sangeeta?
4: I would love for people to actually participate in our Indiegogo campaign we are actually raising funds for a massive outreach so if you kindly go to indiegogo.com slash gods in shackles you can get the information and please contribute anything at all you can to help me uh, You know, find a releasement for these amazing sentient beings that bring so much joy to all of us on our planet. Thank you
1: so much. Oh, thank you, and thanks for your work. And let us know how things go. And if you bring the film to New York City, I'll be in the well, not front row. That's not comfortable. I'll be in the fifteenth row
4: (laughs) (laughs) because that way you'll get a better view. Yes, that would be wonderful. We have a screening in Baltimore. Hopefully, I think.
1: Wonderful. Well, let us know about that and we will let people know uh, and may Ganesh remove every obstacle to getting this film out there in a way that big changes will be made. Thank you for your work and your commitment. Everybody else, stay with us. We are going to be talking to, can you believe it, a presidential candidate.
2: As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now.
3: What if you could experience vibrant health? Help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch and dinner. Are you ready for deeper spiritual breakthroughs? Have you wondered how to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life in practical ways? Do you feel your soul is calling you to deeper purposes? Join Reverend Galen McDowell live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms, a discussion on how God within you, as you, is the power to transform your life. If you really believe that consciousness determines your experiences and that you are an individualized expression of God, join us as we help awaken and transform the consciousness of humanity. We will discuss through lecture We're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at Main Vegan at Unityonlineradio.org. Now back to Main Street Vegan.
1: Welcome back, everybody. I just want to fill you in on a little bit of news taking place in the world of Main Street Vegan. This week on the blog at MainStreetVegan.net, the piece is called Taking Action. It's kind of a takeoff on that TV show, What Would You Do?, What would you do if an animal was in trouble? I'll bet I know what you'd do. But what would you do if a human was in trouble? Sometimes that's a little bit more complicated. This is a very thought-provoking piece by Bonnie Goodman, VLCE. Uh, Bonnie is also a jewelry artist, so if you are needing some um, vegan propaganda jewelry... That is very artful and gorgeous. Uh, check out her site, Mortem Art, M-O-R-D-A-M-A-R-T. She is out there by Yellowstone National Park doing wonderful things. And do check out that blog post over at MainStreetVegan.net. In addition, if you listened last week, you know that this very program is up for a 2016 Veggie Award. So exciting. And you can go to SurveyMonkey.com com, uh, click on Veggie Awards and vote for us if you want to, and vote for all your favorite foods and organizations and events and restaurants and practically everything. It's all there, the great work of Veg News magazine. So thank you, Veg News, for nominating us, and uh, thank you everybody who is considering us as you vote. There is a great big summit coming up. It's called the Plant Pure Summit. It is um, the brainchild of the good people at Plant Pure Nation. I think they're having 44 experts on. I know they've got... Kathy Freston, and Juliana Hever, and Colin Campbell, and oh my goodness, so very many. And I'm very honored to be one of those. So we'll put a link on the show notes to that. And finally, um, there's a new YouTube up on my page, on my channel, Victoria Moran NYC. It's just two minutes on the practice of gratitude. So if you're feeling grateful or you want to feel more grateful, Head on over there to YouTube and have a watch, take a listen. And if you feel like subscribing to the channel, I would be oh so grateful. But, you know, I'm grateful for you guys anyway and every which way. And I'm also grateful that one of the presidential candidates has agreed to be on the Main Street Vegan show. No, it's not one of those. But someone very, very interesting and particularly of interest to anyone who would find all things vegan important. You know who I'm talking about, Clifton Roberts. He is the Humane Party's 2016 presidential candidate. Now, interestingly enough, this is not the first time that we've had a vegan running for president. Way back in 1964, Comedian Dick Gregory ran as a write-in candidate for president. And that means people actually have to not pull the lever or punch the chad. They have to get a pencil out and write somebody's name in and hope somebody can read what they wrote. But interestingly enough, way back when, in the first hour of election night, when only 1% and less than 1% of the votes were counted, it showed on all the networks that Dick Gregory, as a write-in, was ahead. Now, obviously, that was some sort of a problem with the kind of computers they had in 1964, and they fixed it. But Dick Gregory believes, probably to this day, that showing that he was ahead was because so many people were fasting and praying so that his message of human rights and peace would get out into the world. Well, it just seems to me that we are now having the 2016 version of that with Clifton Roberts. I do need to say Unity Online Radio is a a church station, and we're not about politics. They're not telling you who to vote for. I am not telling you who to vote for. This is totally of your conscience. But we certainly want to listen to everybody and see what they had to have to say. And, uh, I think you're going to like what this man has to say. Clifton Roberts is a vegan of nearly 20 years. He also works for the world's largest semiconductor producer as a senior manager in listen to this department. And don't you wish your company had a department called this? Global Ethics and Compliance. I love that corporations will even spell ethics properly. He is the son of a Korean mother and uh, an African Native American father. He's lived in Asia and all over the United States, which gives him a unique perspective about equality for all beings. Welcome, Clifton Roberts.
5: Thank you, Victoria. It is a pleasure to be on your show.
1: Well, it is a pleasure to hear your voice again. As you said, we haven't spoken in a couple of months, so it's lovely to be able to do that today. So give us a little bit of background on you. Before you got into politics, mm-hmm. you were a longtime vegan. How did that all start?
5: Yes. So, you know, I, I think back to when I was a little boy and my mother, who is Korean, like you mentioned, you know, made some really popular Korean dishes. And I remember, you know, asking her what this was made out of, what kimchi is made out of. And she uh, was making some prugogi, which is a very popular Korean dish. And of course, it tastes delicious. But I remember, you know, just it being very tough to chew. And so I asked her, I said, Mommy, what is this made out of? And when she told me cow, I, I, I don't think that I was the same after that. And as a matter of fact, when she wasn't looking, I would chew the flavor out of, the, out of what I knew as meat, you know, in my young age. And I would throw it in the corner behind a, her favorite curio cabinet. when she wasn't yes. looking, you know, <laughs> thinking, <laughs> thinking in my five-year-old brain that, oh, she'll never find that. And, of course, you know, the, the decaying flesh ultimately hit her. Um, and she found it. And needless to say, uh, I got a proper Korean punishment. Um, But, you know, fast forward to 25 years later, I had gone to Cal Berkeley. I had met other people with compassionate views. And uh, I, you know, read a book by someone that uh, is in show business. She happened to be vegan. Her name is Mary Lou Henner. I don't know if you remember her from the show Taxi. Oh,
1: she's been on the show. We love Mary Lou.
5: Yeah, yes, yeah. She's amazing. Uh, and and i'm not even sure she knows that she inspired me and my family members to go vegan but as soon as i read that book and i and the logic that was inherent in that book and i kind of made the connections between how i just naturally felt as a human being you know trying to go vegetarian but when i read that piece about the milk and where it's, what it's designed for Um, designed to turn a 40-pound calf into a 2,000-pound beast in less than two years. And this mammal has four compartments in its stomach. It it just hit me like a rock. And finally, um, my compassion for animals collided with my exposure to common sense, logic, and science. And I realized that not only was my personal consumption of animals going to deteriorate my health, as it did my father, but also my consumption of secretions from animals was unnatural, and that consuming the milk of a cow uh, was an insult to my own common sense. So I made that switch and, and looked back.
1: Well, you not only combine compassion and common sense, but as a person in the business world, you say that compassionate intelligence is a competitive advantage. Tell us about that.
5: Yes. Well, you know, one of the things about the Humane Party that I loved is that there is a value inherent in the Humane Party that states that the most ethical path is also the most practical path. And what I mean, you know, when when I say that, what I mean that we all know that when you forego unsustainable uh, practices that are ethical, it science shows us, and common even world leader view shows us that it, it is the most practical path. So when you have this inherently humane and compassionate position and um, and energy about yourself, that it leads to a very logical, science based view that is intelligent, articulate, and almost non negotiable in most cases. And the only reason why I use the word no- almost when I say non-negotiable, is that um, habit culture and tradition, I think, skews the view of other intelligent beings where they think that that position is the only position. So I do think that it is a competitive advantage, and we're starting to see the benefits of that advantage. We're starting to see that people are making the connections between a compassionate position and um, and, and you know, the way that we live, the way that we are setting up a sustainable future for our children and our grandchildren and the generations to come.
1: I think that starting, a, a word that you used a couple of times, is a very important word there. Because people like you and me who have been doing this for decades think we started a long time ago. But I think culturally we really are starting. You have a, a right. wonderful um, talk. We well, have several wonderful talks on, on YouTube and, and online. But the one that I'm thinking of at this moment is your acceptance speech for the Humane Party's uh, candidacy. I listened to that with my husband and we said almost at the same time, this sounds like someone running from a major party 100 years from now. Because if you think about women's rights and civil rights and things that today are very much a part of this presidential campaign and things that people talk about, a hundred years ago, those things weren't, you know, I think, well, women's rights was just beginning um, to be discussed. I guess, gosh, a hundred years ago wasn't as long ago as I'm thinking. Uh, Suffragettes had been around for a while. But, you know, go back 150 years ago, these things just seemed outrageous. And I think to a lot of people, huh? Humane party, a bunch of vegans having a party. That's weird. Right. But it's only right. weird because we're just starting.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. You know, I remember when I accepted this, the volunteer CEO role of the Humane Party, which in and of itself is is a great um, model, I think. And it's very um, groundbreaking in the way that the political this p- particular political party is set up, but I remember accepting that role, and of course it had been my first time entering the arena of politics. Now that you mentioned starting something, and so you know I wanted to to kind of translate all of this political rhetoric into something that is simplistic and understandable by the layperson, and so I, I came across this quote by Dwight D. Eisenhower. And he was quoted as saying that politics ought to be the part-time profession of every citizen who would protect the rights and privileges of free people and who would preserve what is good and fruitful in our national heritage. And that's how I looked at this political party, is that it gives us, as citizens who are vested in the direction of our country, uh, a platform to finally be able to enter the arena of politics, which is designed to be our arena, and you know for people like you and me and your audience that is not new to this i think for the rest of our country it is something that they are just viewing as we're just getting started with this intersection of politics and logical and science-based compassionate ways of living so i wanted to i mean it's it's such an honor to hear that you and your husband thought that because i wanted to really communicate that to the people that would be listening that I would be going for in terms of their votes in that nomination speech. I wanted it to to be clear why I, as just a citizen that's a father, uh, wanted to enter this realm of politics, and it was important for me to describe the values and the mission and the overall objective, and then tying that back to the vision of our founding architects, that, um, you know, it was their vision to to be peaceful and resolute and, and skillful in, in our approaches to conflict, to disagreement, and to cooperation. Um, and that, you know, our, our continued consumption of death and turmoil soils our souls and darkens our conscience, and it leaches onto our logic and compromises our compassion. Uh, and so th- those were really important in that nomination speech, and I think that it's resonated with some. We'd like to see it resonate with even more, and I'm starting to see. You know, initially uh, we we were seeing you know thousands of views, and now it's in in the thirty thousands. Uh, but we hope to get that to a million people, and then also we hope to inspire others that uh, have never thought about getting into politics to say, "Hey, our Constitution is ours." <laughs> you know, our, it, it was designed for us. And it also states that if you're over 35 years of age and you were born here in the United States or one of its territories, you can absolutely run for the president. You can you can run for Senate or, or you, know, you can be a vice president. So I think that this is groundbreaking in that way. Um, despite you, you met Dick Gregory, who's a huge hero to me. Uh, you know, I, I hope to see that this is going to be more commonplace in the future. And I hope to see that even within this this political party that is the humane party, that we have situations like the Democrats and the Republicans where we have to have a primary. You know, this year I'm the only candidate, but I hope by 2020 I have to run and compete with other people to, to be nominated <laughs> for uh, to, to run uh, on, on the humane party ticket.
1: Oh, it's a great vision. Now, one of the best things about having you as president or in some high place would be that then when children have to memorize speeches, they would get to memorize a really pretty one because you speak <laughs> quite beautifully. Your choice of words is is uh, really, really beautiful. Now, I'm going to ask a devil's advocate question, maybe a couple of sure. them. A lot of sure. people, particularly in the current political climate, are saying, Third parties? Oh, my gosh. We don't need any third parties. And I think people think back to Ross Perot and um, mm-hmm. the person who's a oh, Ralph Nader. I always want to call him Corvette guy, Ralph Nader. And, you know, they mm-hmm. kind of came in as third parties and upset things. People, I think, are feeling upset enough. So I want to ask your opinion on that. And also, if you're going to be a third party, some people would say, Why not the Green Party? It's already established. It has, you know, Mm. in this country and other countries, people in office doing things. So why start something new?
5: Great question. So the first part of yours is the the third party in in being a disruptor. And that actually is our strategy. We want to be a disruptor. And even the Democrats and the Republican Party, they were at one point a new party. They had begun their efforts for a first time, so it just so happens that in 2009, Victoria, that the Humane Party started its effort to be a viable political party alternative. And so, I am—I'm a person you can tell by my uh, experience in enterprise where we're confronted with with obstacles, we're confronted with problems um, or issues. Uh, and, and, and I'm a person and also the people of the humane party, people like yourself and your listeners who have to go through life every day viewing and listening to rhetoric and actions and experiences that are the complete antithesis of, of everything that they live for and they stand for. Those are obstacles in and of itself. So we don't, we don't really pay attention to being a disruptor. I think right now because we're in our infancy infancy stage, as Jeff Rosenberg, who's a member of our board, likes to to put it, I think that with our compassionate intelligence, as you pointed out earlier, that we, based on our science and our ethics and our compassionate view, will build this party up quicker than any in history. So so that's the way I view that. And then also, you know, our vote is is similar to I, I I've used the analogy, um, You know, when we get up in the morning and we brush our teeth and we make that decision, that's no different than our vote. The only reason why people have an opinion on our vote is because we sometimes share our opinion with other people. So our vote is just, our right to vote is just like our right to brush our teeth, in my view. It just so happens we don't tell everybody, hey, I brushed my teeth with, you know, with coconut oil this morning, which I do, by the way. (laughs) Um... But we, we just don't tell people, uh, you know, what we do in, uh, in other p- parts of our personal life. So when it does clash with other views, which in my personal view, and I think it's great that you pointed out that your, your radio station doesn't necessarily reflect my views. But my personal view is when I look back at the landscape of politics. And I look back at the Democrats and the Republicans, and when I was born in 1967, so I can remember Nixon, I can remember Carter, Reagan, um, Clinton, and the Bushes, and I I don't see too much difference, especially in the area of compassionate intelligence, animal rights, the the respect and, and equal treatment of all beings, too much different, really. You know, I, I think overall, all of the presidents, whether Republican or Democrat, have done a good job keeping our nation secure. I think that they've done a great job of keeping our nation uh, one of the, the greatest nations in the history of this planet, and I think they've could have done a great job of protecting its citizens as the government is supposed to do. However, I, what I don't think is we've done a great job protecting all of the beings that co-inhabit this this great this great planet of ours so um, you know that's the the, the the first part of your question um, regarding this the the second part of your question um, you know I've I've been involved uh, in enterprise for you know a long time now and one of the things that we've done in enterprise and we've been able to illustrate in in our work in the corporate world is a sense of being able to quickly come together as teams quickly collaborate whether it's in person or virtually because as you can imagine where I work now there's over a hundred thousand employees and they're spread out all across the globe so a lot of the issues that I have to confront and resolve uh, have to be done Very fast with 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 extreme velocity, and it has to be done uh, cross culturally. It has to be done cross continentally. It has to be done uh, in most cases virtually. But we do get it done, and so that's why I was very confident in coming aboard as not only the CEO, but coming aboard as the uh, presidential nominee for the Humane Party. It's very confident in our ability to actually make progress, and, and by the way, you know, we, we've actually made some significant uh, strides in, in terms of our progress, um, and, and if I have time, I, I'd like to, sh- to share with you and your audience some of our accomplishments, if that'd be okay.
1: That would be okay. But I have a question before that. May I get a question in just because sure, you course. reminded me of it? Uh, and thank you. Thank you for for these other things that uh, you talked about. I want to know why animal agriculture of all industries seems to be in a position of protection that no other industry gets when it comes to the general political world out there. I think if you look at right. both Of the major party presidents scheduled candidates right now, they have both really taken off on a Mm -hmm. lot of of industries. Bernie Sanders, I mean, he was after Wall Street, the oil industry, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, big players who could come back with a vengeance if they so chose. But in the case of all three of those people, and as far as I can tell, all the others who were in those endless debates the animal agriculture industry gets a pass. Why that industry? I mean, pharmaceuticals have got to be every bit as powerful. They get bashed, not animal agriculture. What's going on?
5: Because before people look at animal agriculture as a problem with our treatment of beings, it's connected to food. And then, of course, with food, there's a connection to habit, tradition, and culture. In all of our political candidates are embedded in that component. They grew up eating a certain type of food. They grew up, w- what they view as food. And so it's it's part of their passionate view, their, their position on what it is. So when you have lobbyists that come to Washington and that are courting presidential candidates, and they say, you know, so if I'm, if, if, to give you an example, if I'm Bernie Sanders, And um, Bernie Sanders have had experience with pharmaceuticals, whereas he's had a pleasant experience, in his view, with the food he eats or what he considers food. I've even heard Bernie Sanders, who I admire and respect deeply, um, him refer to, you know, when when people asked him about uh, abolishing or getting rid of animal agricultures and factory farms, he said, no, people love their bacon too much. I mean, he actually refers to these innocent, intelligent beings as, that are pigs as, as bacon. And so it's his own personal connection and his own personal experience with that issue. So that's why animal agriculture is getting a pass. Not only that, there are, there's an inherent conflict of interest uh, with, within lobbying in our government. Because you have lobbyists that represent special interests where those special special interests actually have people that have jobs within the USDA or Department of Agriculture. So there's a conflict of interest there that exists, I think, that also add that additional layer of, of, uh, of an obstacle for us to overcome. So we, we see that all the time with you know, with Hillary and Bernie, and even Trump, and some of the other candidates in previous elections, Obama even—you know—he would never. You've heard him say, um, "You know, my wife and I go hunting when we go here, or this is a good. You know, this is going to be good for the hunters." You know, our our propositions to uh, enhance our gun safety laws is still going to be good for hunters. It's because they 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 have embedded in their own experience. Um, you know this this antithesis to a, a compassionate view. So I think, yeah. it, in my view, that that is why we see animal agriculture getting a pass, even in even on an, on a world scale. You have the United Nations that have stated that animal agriculture is the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, thirty three percent of greenhouse gas emissions come from animal agriculture, and yet governments and leaders of governments. in in different countries have not made that connection. What we need to do actually, Victoria, is, you know, um, I think if our constitution, which is uh, an, an indication of the very heart of a country, our constitutions are a window into the soul of our nation. And I think if we had an ideal world here within the United States, We would make the connection between environmental rights and animal agriculture and the health of its citizens, and we would amend our Constitution, which is what the Humane Party is all about, and and include the right to a healthy environment in our Constitution to ensure that every citizen has the right to live in and defend a sound and ecologically balanced environment.
1: Well, you did such a beautiful job of answering that inserted question. I want to make sure you have time. (laughs) to talk about the humane party's accomplishments let's be sure before our time winds down which is happening all too quickly that we do get a word in for breeze harper phd she's the author of sister vegan from our friends at lantern books the editor of sister vegan it's actually a collection of of essays uh, about intersectionality of oppression and she is your vice presidential candidate
5: Oh, my gosh, yes. I am so excited that she agreed to join uh, this ticket, Victoria. And like you, I am a huge fan. As a matter of fact, when I accepted the nomination for the Humane Party, I started to think about who would be a good fit as the vice presidential running mate. So, you know, I had already had exposure to Breeze. There was a a man named Michael uh, Bresenwix, and uh, he would call me all the time. He is an elder he is my elder, so I have a tremendous amount of respect for his his position and his experience. And we we used to have these Saturday calls where I would just talk to him for two hours to get his perspective. And he said, "You know, who would be great is Breeze Harper." And it just so happened that serendipity brought us together after that. You know, I I, I reached out to her on Facebook and I, I made a friend's request. And then one day, after our Veg News special. On uh, Black History Month, we both appeared in that. I wrote her, and I said, Breeze, hi, Would I hope you would consider being my running mate. <laughs> and uh, she wrote back, and she said, hi, Clifton, was this meant for me?
1: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. Yeah.
5: She's so humble, and so I wrote back and I said, absolutely, Breeze. You know, I have an enormous amount of respect for you. I mean, Victoria, you know, but just to give your audience an update, you know, she has a PhD in social science with an emphasis on uh, leveraging diversity challenges for social impact. Uh, She has uh, a master's in educational technologies uh, from uh, Harvard University where she received the Dean's Award for her master's thesis work. And she, her B.A. is from uh, Dartmouth, and it was in feminist geography. And, and she's an author, like you said, and uh, she's a, uh, a mother of four. She's vegan. She raises her children to be vegan. Her husband is a vegan astrophysicist. Uh, so, you know, there's so much to respect about just, her, and I couldn't be more just, thrilled just and honored. Just your
1: average American family.
5: Yeah, right. (laughs) I agree.
1: That's great. Well, you'll have to put us in touch. She's never been on this show. I would love to have her on next year. So we are down, unfortunately, to two mere minutes. So tell us, uh, with your really fast, you sometimes visit New York and can talk fast voice um, about the Humane Party and what it's done.
5: Well, you know, our goals was to be the change in establishing uh, a culture that embodies compassion and cooperation. We've done that. Uh, We have a tremendous support base and volunteer base. Another goal was to build a vehicle so that we can be effective at winning elections and getting skilled candidates who live and lead according to humane ideals. This candidacy with Breeze Harper and I, we signed an oath that uh, we would always live our lives according to humane values and we we 've a uh, third goal was to project this vision, and the fact that we 're on your show talking to you and your audience communicating the opportunities and advantages that the Humane Party offers is a testament to that vision so now um, and then also we 've sowed the seeds to nurture and grow you know uh, chapters and development areas in all states, so we 've seen that as well. I met Sandy. Uh, who's a good friend of yours, as a result of that effort. Now our final goal to harvest the votes and win elections is next.
1: That is so exciting, and I, I wish you well. Lots of information about Clifton and the Humane Party will be on the MainStreetVegan.net show notes. Just click on podcast, you'll find those. And we'll send you to CliftonRoberts.org, to CliftonRoberts on Twitter, and uh, some wonderful YouTubes of him so that... uh, You can learn some really good stuff. Thank you so, so much for spending time with us today. Next week, everybody, we'll have Eric Day. He's the filmmaker who did vegan everyday stories featuring, among other wonderful vegans, last week's enchanting nine-year-old guest, Genesis Butler. And we're also going to be having next week Dr. Heather Lounsbury. She is a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, an acupuncturist, and also a vegan You don't run across that intersection very often. Lots of times people go for acupuncture and they're told they need to be eating animal products. So we're going to hear from a traditional Chinese doctor who says, no, we're not going to tell you that. So do tune in and gosh, everybody out there. Lovely guests, Clifton Roberts and Sangeeta Iyer with Gods and Shackles. Everybody at Unity Online Radio, especially our skillful engineer, Jeff Comfort, out there in Missouri. Thank you so very much, and to everyone who listened, God bless you. Eat your veggies.
3: You can choose to focus on what you perceive as lacking in your life, or you can change your outlook. You can become wise to wonderful ways of playing the game of life. Count your blessings. Instead of focusing on what you believe is missing, let yourself become aware of how truly blessed you already are. This is the way to build an attitude of gratitude. Give thanks for all of the abundance you're presently enjoying and for the abundance of every good thing that's on its way to you. Everything you need to be happy is already within you, waiting to be discovered. Unlimited happiness and fulfillment can be yours. Unlock the door to undiscovered treasure by building an attitude of gratitude. This law of life is brought to you by Unity.
0: To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org.